to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners, Killian, Mike, and Forrest. And this week's icebreaker question was inspired by a tweet. And I'm just going to read it to you to get your feedback because it's just so telling. So it says, hi, I created JavaScript. You should block JS used for third-party trackers fingerprinting ads. You should definitely block the new cryptocurrency mining scripts. So how do you think the creator of JavaScript, Brendan, feels about having to send these PSAs after he created it and your overall general reactions to the tweet? Hi, this is Killian. When I read that, the first thing I could think is the Oppenheimer quote uh, when he saw the kind of atomic bomb go off. I am become God, the destroyer of worlds. Uh, I don't think it's quite that dire, but seeing something that you created being used for nefarious purposes always hurts a little bit, I would imagine. It would be great if we lived in a world where he didn't have to send those tweets, but people are going to take and abuse and misuse things. And that's just kind of how it works. We create things with the best of intentions, but sometimes we have to think of the worst intentions and factor that in when we go through our creative process. Hey, this is Mike. I think it's sort of interesting. I, I think some of these things, especially like the cryptocurrency mining scripts, if it's malicious, I think that's one thing. But uh, there was a website, at least one I know of, that's actually trying it as a means as an alternative to ads, I think there's a lot of room for how tools are used as well as just, you know, what they're created for. This is Forrest. And uh, yeah, actually, I don't know. I, I really admire the, I don't know, sense of responsibility over his own, I don't know what's the right word, prestige or, or what have you in terms of being, you know, one of the creators. So I don't know. I, I was impressed by it. Guys, and for our regular listeners, if you enjoy our show, if you can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, We'll send you a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit ronis.com slash review. So I started the show with a tweet about JavaScript because what's happening in our industry is that we create something, whether it's a very useful language or an IoT device or hardware, and then we have to go back to patch or update. And I want to know how you guys feel about Troy Hunt's PSA on how you do not tell people to turn off Windows updates. And I think it's unfortunate, but I also really like the part when he admitted that updates will annoy you. I can't believe in this day and age that's something that we have to continue to tell people, like that turning off Windows updates is bad advice. Unless you were frozen in ice and you just woke up now and you haven't experienced a computer before, I think it's all pretty generally accepted that, yes, uh, Windows updates and updates in general will be annoying. I just had that experience earlier this week where our managed system installed updates on my computer and it forced an update on me and, you know, I, I lost some work that I had been working on. Maybe that's a little bit of my fault. Of course, I'll take responsibility because I didn't save as diligently maybe as possible. It's annoying. Yes, it's a pain in the behind. Yes, but getting your machine infected with ransomware, having all of your files encrypted, that's a way bigger pain. It's really telling people, especially in the non-corporate environment, not to turn on their automatic updates is it's almost, I don't want to be too strong here, but it's almost negligent. It's, it's just bad. Whoever you're telling that to, it's not great advice because we know people are busy. They're going to forget about it um, and they're not going to do it. It is a pain. It is annoying. And, you know, that automatic update system is there for a reason because people aren't going to do it manually. Uh, we learned that from, you know, years and years. That's why there's an automatic update system. There's a really weird maybe analogy I have for how necessary it is, but 
Like in the last week or two, I went to go order some new contacts and it was rejected because like my prescription's like a year old or something like that. You know, the eye doctor, the optometrist or whatever, you know, I guess they have to verify it. You know, it said like, oh, like you can't order new contacts till you get a new prescription. And I mean, the truth of the matter is, if I wasn't forced to do that, I would go four or five years between going to the optometrist to get a new prescription, at least making me do it. For a lot of things, for a lot of maintenance things, a lot of health things, you know, that's really the only way you're going to do it. You know, otherwise I would just put it off for years. The same thing with, I totally understand why Windows started to make it necessary and I get that it's a pain, but trying to like find ways of, you know, I think for a while it was, you know, there was like registry edits you can do to like disable it. You can't go down that road. That's absurd. We're in a very different time than we were 10, 20 years ago. And a lot of the advice about like, don't turn on these automatic updates. You need to, you know, to verify each of these you know, updates that it's not going to break and do all these things. I think that only works when you're a professional and it's your full-time job and you're trying to do these things. For the average consumer, it doesn't work at all and, you know, incredibly harmful. In fact, I think one of the greatest security wins of the past few years has been Chrome with their, you know, silent auto updates, where it just updates to the latest, fixes things, and it works. And I think there needs to be a real split made between good updates and bad updates. Like there's a good way to do this and a bad way to do this, that it's not the updates themselves, it's, you know, how they're implemented. I think along that end, Mike, since you, you brought up kind of Chrome and Android, Google, if I am correct, and Mike, you can correct me, you might know this, but they've been trying to push things further out um, as opposed to centralizing things to facilitate updating components easier, I believe. Instead of, you know, a major OS update, um, you still have to do patches and things like that, but they're trying to push some of the services out into their own individual items in the App Store so they can update them incrementally and give people a better chance of having the most up-to-date stuff, even if their phone provider, for example, doesn't provide updates quite as quickly as they'd like. You know, the services components can be updated individually, which I think is a great model as well, too. Right. I think that goes to the point of designing these systems in a way that they can be easily updated without infuriating people, that it's just part of the experience. But, you know, more so, I I turn this around to be, I think it's the responsibility of the technology provider to provide these in a way that doesn't make people angry and that really helps people and not just to like throw out unnecessary updates or to implement them in a way that frustrates people using them. Yeah, I I agree. And to defend Microsoft a little bit, I think they have been making a lot of advances this way. But as you mentioned, and the article makes mention of this too, it's easier in this case for Apple to do that because they very tightly control a lot of the hardware ecosystem and a lot of the updates. It's much more controlled as opposed to Windows, which is a much more open environment. But I think Microsoft is doing a much better job, certainly than they have in the past, incorporating that. But again, I think we still have a little ways to go. And to tie your icebreaker question on crypto mining with Troy Hunt having to do a PSA, there's crypto jacking software, which is malware that mines cryptocurrency running in a European water utility network. And these utilities are being targeted because their infrastructure systems are just really great hosts for parasitic CPU hogging malware. What do you think the implications are now that crypto malware is going to want to leech off of utility companies? The one takeaway that I had from this is I know we've talked about some of the infrastructure components before in these um, systems that run uh, our critical infrastructure being very vulnerable because they tend to be kind of cobbled together. They weren't ever designed to be online like they are now. But I think the positive benefit of this, if there is a positive benefit, is that these things tend to be targets of attack or could be very devastating if attacked. 
some of these kind of low rent crypto mining things might be enough to spur people maybe to enforce that air gap network or take better precautions or take any precautions to protect these networks before something really you know bad happens. Uh, an attacker goes after them to disable the critical infrastructure. Fingers crossed there. Maybe it's a pie in the sky hope, but this could be maybe just enough to let people know that these systems are vulnerable and maybe do something about it before something really bad happens. On the other hand, with these types of crypto mining things, if they're there running and they're taking up CPU cycles, if the systems do need to you know, kick on to failback mode or do something, um, that could also be disastrous too. So let's hope that this is a learning opportunity and they can take advantage of someone pointing out the potential issues. Mike, I, I don't know if this really changes things from ransomware. So ransomware is, you know, malware, it encrypts the files that it can get to on the network and then, you know, tries to charge you Bitcoin to unlock them. In this case, you know, it's actually running uh, mining software that then mines the cryptocurrency. Uh, typically, Monero is the currency as part of Ethereum. It, it kind of doesn't matter. I think what I think is interesting and why I don't think air gap networks really help is that in a lot of places, this is an insider threat. There's a thought that, oh, I could put this on our website that's really popular and then everyone who lands on it is going to be mining for crypto coins and, you know, I'll get the money from that. Or there have been cases and people arrested for things like, oh, there's a giant computer lab that no one uses from the hours of 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. I'm just going to set up all these machines to do crypto mining overnight and then, you know, take that. And it's a weird sort of spot where, you know, employees maybe think that, oh, this isn't a problem that I'm using these resources for myself. And it's a little bit of a gray area, but I think it's a real issue. And maybe there's there's one easy thing you can do today if you're in charge of a network is just send an email to everyone saying, hey, this is not an acceptable use of our computer resources. Don't do this. Yeah, wasn't there just uh, something else in the news about a, it was like a, was it a national laboratory in Russia where the scientists were putting on like the, the lab equipment overnight, like just oh, in yeah. the last like two weeks. Yeah. That was a that was big news for a little while there. Yeah, and that's that's not them having vulnerabilities. That's going, hey, we could use this for other stuff. Yeah, so it you know until the policy is on paper, it may not actually be a violation of policy. I mean, maybe creatively, but I mean, you know, so we've talked about. I think the term is ICS, industrial control systems. I think is is part of what this is, like the what was targeted in this article. I, it was kind of a matter of time, I think, you know, because they're notoriously insecure. I think ICS. Also, you know, maybe IoT devices. I don't know if they have the computing power or the processing power to really contribute much to mining. But I mean, they're so open and, and vulnerable. I mean, you know, there's a dozen in every house in the next decade. Suddenly, maybe even if it's, you know, doesn't have a lot of computing power, maybe it's still something that could produce revenue. Well, like a lot of this, I think it's the economics. It's that the up and coming cryptocurrencies are designed in such a way that mining can still take place in a distributed fashion and that they're deliberately set up that way so that um, you can mine with, you know, GPUs and in some cases CPUs instead of needing, you know, custom silicon hardware for Bitcoin, which is what most of Bitcoin is mined with now. To keep it distributed is sort of that's touted as both, you know, an inherent positive to these currencies, as well as it makes it so that, you know, just as you're saying, Forrest, lots and lots of things could be compromised because it's really talking about energy. If I could use the energy in your house, no matter how small, to run my stuff, 
it's all it's all free money to me. I think what we really need to do is design like a cow clicker game that also mines cryptocurrency. And then, you know, we'll be all set up to our ears and Teslas. Do you think uh, any of the cryptocurrencies will ever be a legitimate currency? I think it doesn't matter. I think it doesn't matter because there's always going to be, you know, a means to convert it into a fiat currency. Last week or within the last couple of weeks, I saw an article that some of the major um, credit card organizations are preventing people from purchasing uh, cryptocurrencies with their cards and things like that. Do you think that's going to have any type of impact or effect on on any of these? Yes. I mean, there's there's clearly a bubble right now and all sorts of weird issues and all sorts of scams. Every scam that's ever happened is now, you know, the exact same scam, but, you know, with the word cryptocurrency jammed into it, that's going to sort out. I think it's much more interesting to try to figure out if there are interesting uses for the blockchain. We're obviously interested in security, and you can think of the blockchain in a lot of ways as global append-only database log of events. Like, that could be really interesting and useful for a lot of security situations where a lot of times when there's intrusions now, part of the cleanup is I break in and then I uh, delete the logs. You know, if that's not possible, hey, that's a real benefit. And there's other, you know, potential uses. But I, I think for the time being, what's interesting from a security perspective is that this really distorts the value of taking over systems that you don't own because you can immediately turn around and start you know, running this stuff. You don't have to compromise. It's unlikely to be found because it's not aggressive in the same way that you know ransomware is. If you had to get, you know, not that anybody wants to get infected with anything, but I feel like I'd probably rather get infected with a ransomware or a crypto mining strain of malware than a ransomware one. Oh, yeah. Um, much easier to come back from. So Right. So another leech in the system are cyber criminals who are looking at our LinkedIn profiles where an attacker might use their knowledge of a company's structure to pose as uh, someone's boss, a colleague, um, trick them into clicking on a phishing email, trick them into sharing sensitive information. And I never thought about it this way that Hackers would also look at what roles companies are hiring for IT so that they know which databases you're using, operating systems that they're using. What are your responses? I thought this was great, actually. I mean, great in a terrible way. But think about it. Think about kind of exactly what salespeople, for example, do. They go around uh, on LinkedIn and do exactly these same tasks to try and map out the organization, find out who's kind of the power there so they can make the phone call and ask to speak to the, you know, CISO, whoever it happens to be, whatever they're trying to sell. And it's, you know, that's a completely legitimate use of it. Or looking at, again, what jobs are posted there to figure out what type of infrastructure and components these people have in their organization to help target their sales campaign. So if I'm trying to sell backup widget X, Y, Z, and they're listing for an EMC NAS device or NetApp NAS device, and mine doesn't support that, it might help in my forecasting the deal. Is this worth pursuing? Again, it's one of those things that it's almost shocking that it's taken so long for someone to kind of criminalize it, but it makes complete sense. I would actually be surprised if it actually took criminals this long to criminalize it. I mean, I feel like this has been going on. I mean, like I remember reading Mitnick stuff like 10 years ago, you know, that was basically about similar kinds of like social engineering and research, you know? So, I mean, I, it makes total sense. I mean, I think people have been doing it for, for a long time. And I'm sure once LinkedIn first came out, they, they were on that. I think what's different is, like, like a lot of things with technology, what's different is the scale. And I think what we're seeing now is the start of a lot of the traditional, you know, again, this sort of goes to the things I think are distinguished to the economics of this. Like up to now, this hasn't been done because it hasn't mattered. That there's been enough, you know, 
people out there and it's been lax enough that it's easy enough to pull off scams. You don't have to do anything creative. And I think what we're going to be seeing is a lot more, you know, intelligent criminal use of this data so that it's not me going into LinkedIn and thinking like, oh, who can I find in Veronis to try to hit up? It's going to be me running a script against the LinkedIn API that then goes through and it sends a, a message to Killian that says, hey, man, I haven't talked to you in six months because it looked and saw the last message date and said like, oh, you know, I was, are you still working at, you know, such and such or have you switched jobs? And then we talk and then, you know, I end up with like, I got this weird investment opportunity. I was wondering if you could look at this, maybe tell me if it's a scam or not. One of my buddies made so much money. And like, if you got the contact uh, details for that Nigerian prince, I'm in. Let's do it. Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a real different thing, the sort of merging of this stuff and at the scale. You know, we've reduced all of the friction almost in that process. It's almost trivial to pull this off anymore. I think the other thing is that in general, everyone's conversations on online have gotten so terse and so weird that it makes the, the lower bar for what could conceivably be a real conversation a lot more achievable to, you know, an AI machine learning chatbot kind of system. I won't disagree with you there. <laughs> So we're going to spend the rest of the podcast emulating Troy Hunt. We're going to do PSAs on a few things we think are important. Let's start with the article that listed six laws of technology everyone should know. So number one, technology isn't good or bad, nor is it neutral. Number two, invention is the mother of necessity. Number three, technology comes in packages big and small. Number four, although technology might be prime element in many public issues. Non-technical factors take precedence in technology policy decisions. Number five, all history is relevant, but the history of technology is the most relevant. Number six, technology is a very human activity. So which one resonated with you the most? But elaborate because, for instance, number two invention is the mother of necessity isn't as literal as it appears. To, to me, I think technology is a very human activity that in most cases for all of these things, you know, like I said, you know, every scam now is a crypto scam because that's just what today is. In you know, six years, it's going to be every scam is, you know, a genetic uh, testing scam where, you know, you're synthesizing, you know, androids to come to your house, uh, whatever it is, it's goes all the way back to, you know, 100 years ago, it was every scam is, you know, oh, these horses are going away and now there's a car and we're inventing cars. So I don't know how much of this has changed in terms of the human nature that, you know, it's more an expression of our our humanness than it is a dehumanizing factor. I think just at the at a very surface level, and Cindy kind of indicated this, that um, technology is uh, the mother of necessity. I think that's only accelerating more. You know, we develop something, but then we have to continue to develop more um, to drive the value of that initial thing. Um, and I think that there are plenty of businesses, uh, you know, developed specifically around that concept. And it's really driving a lot of the economy. Hey, I have this great thing. Um, what else do I need to develop? Can I get other people on board to develop for it? You know, and that's kind of the, the engine of the economy. I also like the one about technology um, comes in packages big and small. Uh, that article had made mention of some of the, you know, previous centuries technology driving the economy and how it's been superseded in a lot of ways by technology. And I think the current technology right now is, I don't know if it's reached that critical mass yet, but it's so pervasive in our society you almost have to start to look at, have we gotten as far as we can get with this technology? You know, what's the next evolution? Now, cell phones can get smaller, more intelligent. Um, the cloud, again, and AI can bring us massive leaps in, in technology and learning and functionality. But what's, what's going to be that next leap for us? 
you know, maybe as Mike said, is it going to be something around genetics? Are we going to have technology embedded in us to some degree or not? And I think I think looking towards the future, I can't see the future, obviously, but I think that is going to be the next revolution. How do we get to that next leap in technology? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the the crux of the the invention is the mother of necessity kind of point is that, you know, there's like a leap of a, of some new concept that, you know, like smartphones that we haven't really thought about before. Beforehand, you wouldn't have known about smartphones coming out. But, you know, once they did, they necessitated some more advances, you know, and, and maybe they were small and maybe ancillary to smartphones. But, you know, where would be without them? You know, like a data networks or wireless data networks that could, you know, handle the the bandwidth that people needed to be able to, you know, watch YouTube on their phone all the time. I mean, I'm sure that's, you know, had great implications for, you know, medical technology, things like that. So, I mean, just a, a smartphone, like a new invention being the reason that we even need another ancillary, you know, development. Right. I mean, think about it. I don't know, but probably how many of us had the, the original iPhone back then when it was only on the 3G network, you know what I mean? And Wi-Fi wasn't pervasive on every street corner. But think about it now you know, with, with how fast the cell phone service is. And it's just, they're just developing it more. You know, there's Wi-Fi that's completely pervasive everywhere anymore. And look at the, the benefits on society that's had forced uh, infrastructure upgrades on the back end to handle all of the additional bandwidth. So do we have a tool of the week? We do. It's the Microsoft SQL database attacking tool. We mostly deal with unstructured data at Veronis, but a huge amount of the data of the world is structured, and a lot of it is in Microsoft SQL servers. This tool helps you test your own server, hopefully, to see if it could be, you know, attacked from the outside. And we'll do things like uh, bulk password login attempts, a lot of remote uh, technical information scraped out of it in terms of the version issues, trying to get a command shell on it. Um, so it's a great open source tool. You can download it on GitHub and it's MSDAT, the Microsoft SQL database attacking tool. Thanks to Mike Bugby, Forrest Temple, Kelly Mingler, and all our listeners for joining us today. Let us know what you think about our podcast by going to iTunes to rate and review. Thanks and we'll meet up again next week. Thanks everyone. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye everyone. <laughs>